You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. When it comes to patching, we've got the good, the bad, and the ugly, but mostly the good. Drydex is back. The Brussels airport hacker turns out to be a literal script kitty, with the emphasis on the kitty. Moscow treason trials shut down Russian cooperation with Western law enforcement. Robert Lord from Protenis returns to tell us about their breach barometer report for the healthcare industry. A look ahead to RSA and some Valentine's Day advice. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, February 10th, 2017. We often hear about the importance of patching, and two stories today offer cautionary tales on why it's important and why it's important to do it right. First, why it's important. Unpatched WordPress instances have been clobbered with defacements at an increasing rate this week. Sucuri, the firm that discovered and disclosed the now-swatted bug to WordPress, has been tracking attacks and finds that as of yesterday more than 1.5 million pages had been hit. WordPress quietly fixed the problem in its API back on the 26th of January with release 4.7.2. The patch was rolled out quietly in the hope that hackers would overlook the vulnerability WordPress was closing, but that hope was apparently in vain. A number of industry observers would strengthen that observation, saying that the hope was foreseeably, inevitably in vain, since patching a vulnerability unavoidably discloses that vulnerability to the ill-intentioned. So WordPress users are advised to patch. It's the old versions that are being hit hard. Second, why it's important to do it right. NASA's Inspector General has released a report on industrial control system security within the Space Agency. NASA sensibly commissioned the study because of the extent to which operational technology has evolved away from manual systems toward increasingly comprehensive automation. Among the findings was this. Application of a security patch to software used to control a large engineering oven caused a reboot that stopped the oven's monitoring equipment from running. This effectively disabled both temperature control systems and impeded alarm activation, causing a fire that burned undetected for three and a half hours. So, check patches for unintended consequences before applying them. And managers, when IT says they're verifying the patch is okay to apply, remember, they have good reason to do so. According to authorities in Belgium and the United States, the post-massacre cyber attack on Brussels International Airport last March proves, surprisingly and troublingly, 
to be the non-ideological work of a Pittsburgh miner described in news reports as a child. There's no sign of ISIS inspiration or commitment, just another awful example of online disinhibition and another lesson in the importance of remaining circumspect in attribution. Treason arrests of current and former FSB officers in Moscow are said to have effectively muzzled Russian cooperation with Western law enforcement operations. They've clammed up, as Fidelis's John Bambanek described it. Since the FSB officers are accused of giving information to the Americans, you might think twice before doing something that could be misconstrued as espionage. In industry news, Accenture buys VeriSign's iDefense Security Intelligence Service to augment its cyber threat intelligence offerings. Evident.io and its remediation platform pick up $22 million in a Series C investment, and threat intelligence exchange TrueStar attracts $5 million led by Storm Ventures. Next Tuesday is St. Valentine's Day, and since we know a thing or two about our listener demographic, we're pretty sure that many of your thoughts are turning to a romantic dinner for two at Arby's. As you offer your significant other the horsey sauce, however, you may be troubled by Arby's disclosure yesterday to Krebs on Security that the restaurant chain had been the victim of a data breach. Jeff Hill, director of product management at Prevalent Inc., reminds us that this is part of a pattern. Quote, when the retail industry is attacked... It very often manifests as a point-of-sale infection, and point-of-sale device infections nearly always originate at a third party. End quote. He cites the famous target breach traced to an HVAC contractor as one of the more famous examples. He goes on to say, quote, Studies vary, but it is generally recognized that at least 40% of all enterprise breaches originate at a third-party vendor. In the retail space, that figure is likely much higher. End quote. So, a reminder of the significance of third-party risk. But to return to the silver lining in the story, the good news is that Arby's reports they've remediated the point-of-sale system problems, and so you may squire your betrothed to the local food court without unusual risk of losing your pay card information. Any other romantic risks, and you don't need us to tell you, February 14th is a positive minefield of such risks, are solely your responsibility. Brothers and sisters, you know who you are. Mes blabla, mes frères. Finally, of course, we'll be in San Francisco next week. That's right, in the city by the other bay, covering RSA 2017, the annual Woodstock of the cybersecurity industry. We've been linking to some forward-looking pieces on the conference, and we'll be reporting on what we see and hear around the event. In the meantime, here are some of the stories we'll be watching. The innovation sandbox is always interesting, and the startups chosen to compete have over the years become some of the industry's more influential players. The sandbox runs Monday. We'll be there for it. The conference provides many opportunities for a look at the interplay of technology, commerce, and policy. It'll be interesting to see, for example, what technologies the Department of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate has queued up for transition. And, of course, we'll be talking with interesting companies, large, small, and medium. If you see us around the Moscone Center, be sure to stop us and say hello. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. 
It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Uh, Ben, you know, once again, we find ourselves uh, back looking at the uh, playpen child porn case. Um, But we've got some interesting developments here. Bring us up to date. Yeah. So back in 2015, and we've talked about this before, federal investigators temporarily began operating this playpen child pornography site for 13 days before shutting it down as part of what they called a network investigative technique to try and find basically uh, IP addresses, the users of this this service. One of those users was a guy by the name of Jay Michaud, who lives up in Vancouver, Washington. He allegedly logged on to this Playpen site while it was being run by the federal government, and he was arrested and prosecuted. Uh, The judge, as part of the prosecution, asked for the source code used to target this defendant. And instead of providing that source code, the FBI decided to keep it classified. Without the source code, the case can't go forward. The prosecution can't go forward. The federal government has dropped its appeal on the case and has allowed this individual, Michaud, to go free. So we were just talking about it before. This is one of the luckiest people in the country. He was caught using child pornography, but because the federal government has bigger fish to fry in the form of the source code, uh, he's going to be able to evade prosecution. So just take us through sort of the the big picture of this. I mean, here we have someone who who has serious charges uh, against him, uh, but instead of pursuing that case, uh, the government decides to step back and live to fight another day? Yeah. uh, First of all, there are 135 cases like this nationwide in courts of varying jurisdictions. So it's possible that there could be a friendly judge somewhere that could go through with the prosecution without asking for the source code. Generally, a defendant in a criminal case has a right to what's called a Frank's hearing, uh, which is to determine the sufficiency of the interrogation methods used to get evidence to uh, arrest a person. It's possible that there could be a judge that 
could deem the investigatory process sufficient without looking at the source code. Uh, and since there are so many cases uh, cut across so many jurisdictions, uh, it's certainly possible. And in that case, in order to protect the code, it would not be in the government's interests to uh, continue to prosecute cases where they would have to reveal the code. Of course, the result of that is that people who have committed a federal crime uh, viewing child pornography uh, are going to evade prosecution. But I think the way the federal government sees it, that's a small price to pay in order to protect the integrity of the source code. And is there a way that the government can take that off the table? I mean, it's it's going to be really hard. Yeah. Defendants have a constant, uh, constitutional right to confront the evidence against them and, and to know exactly hmm. which ev- evidence uh, produced the incriminating information that led to their charges. Uh, as I mentioned, they're entitled to this so-called Franks hearing. And there could be judges who are going to be satisfied with the evidence without seeing the source code. But if a judge isn't, then there are very few options that the federal government has. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Robert Lord. He's the CEO and co-founder of Protenus, a company that provides privacy protection for patients and providers in the healthcare industry. He returns to the CyberWire to tell us about their breach barometer report covering 2016. One thing that we see is a remarkable consistency from month to month on the proportion of uh, types of breaches. So we see always probably around 40%, give or take, of breaches are attributable to insiders. So one issue there is that we constantly, when we think about breaches, when we think about hacking or cybersecurity incidents, we think about these external actors, individuals who are breaking into our systems and stealing data, whether that's state or criminal actors. But in fact, what um, what our research reveals that at least in healthcare, you've got hacking uh, that makes up about 26.8% of all breaches uh, when you look back at all of 2016. Mm-hmm. But insider threats are about 43% of all breaches. And so really what we're saying is, you know, we really need to take a more, a closer and quantitative look to say, what really do we need to defend against? And is it matching up with our broader intuition around our vulnerabilities? So when you say insider threats, what's the spectrum of, of things that that encompasses? So insider threats can be anything from your naively dangerous individuals. So individuals who might be taking information inappropriately home um, and then losing it uh, all the way to individuals who are systematically scraping and stealing medical records and diverting them to the black market for resale or for use against individuals. So it's it's a pretty wide spectrum of maliciousness um, and sophistication. But overall, what we see is that healthcare, unfortunately, um, is not having these threats go down. We're really not deploying any solutions to tackle them systematically across the industry. 
um, and that there's a real need to grow an awareness of these challenges. In terms of reporting these breaches, uh, obviously healthcare is a highly regulated mm-hmm. environment. Um, so how, how does the reporting uh, with, with what is known, with what is made public and, and the delays in getting that information out, how does that all play out? Great question. Reportable healthcare breaches fall into to two broad categories. One is your smaller breaches that just need to be reported on an annual basis. Um, and those can be things like faxes being missent, small individual incidents uh, that don't really need to have the scope of an immediate public notification, um, that type of thing. But any breach that involves greater than 500 patients, HHS uh, needs to be a no- notified immediately of that. Hmm. Um, you have a 90-day reporting window for that. And then those are added to what's called the wall of shame, which is maintained by the Office of Civil Rights, uh, which is responsible for administering HIPAA. Um, And that really allows you to get a sense of what are the breaches that are occurring, um, what are the characteristics of those breaches, and how long is it taking people to respond to them. Now, one of the challenges that we see with that is while, of course, um, OCR does its best and, and does a pretty good job on many fronts, um, we, when we went through all the breaches that were publicly reportable, we still saw that probably a third again of breaches versus the OCR wall of shame were not being put on the OCR wall of shame. And so what this means is that there still is a need to have a, a bit more of a rigorous methodology, perhaps more of a proactive methodology to finding and reporting these breaches um, and making sure that there's a, a centralized place for people to look at all of that information and understand what these trends are. We think that as hospitals and health systems, HIEs, payers start to examine their security posture, we believe and we hope that 2017 becomes the year of insider uh, threat awareness. It's not that anything's fundamentally changed. It's that what we believe is occurring is an awareness and a transformation in people's understanding of the fact that this is a threat that they can no longer avoid or believe is just the cost of doing business. All of this really gets to a core question and a core message that we always talk about at Pretenis, that we think about um, at the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology. And that issue is, how do we ensure trust in healthcare, right? How do we have the confidence to know all the way from the patient believing that their data will be protected and will be used appropriately to the system administrator knowing that everyone who has access to that data appropriately has that access and is using it appropriately to everything in between. A hospital really needs to understand every single access to patient data that occurs. And the health system as a whole badly needs a set of systems and processes to feel that all of this interoperability, all of this exchange of health data, all of this data sharing that's been pushed, and appropriately so for improving patient care, is not done to the detriment of the privacy and security of all the patients whose data is being shared. At its core, uh, trust in healthcare is a question of making sure that you understand what appropriate use of information is. And to do that, we really need a greater understanding of all the players. That means we need to understand all the users and how they normally and appropriately access data. We need to understand all the patients and what those normal care flows should look like. What, um, what, it lo- what does an appropriate course of care look like? And then all the connections between those, whether it's health information exchanges, electronic health records, payers and claims management, financial systems, understanding both the content of the data as well as how that data flows through all these health organizations is a real challenge that healthcare is facing now, but one that they're beginning to tackle 
one that they understand really needs to come onto the their horizon for 2017 and 2018, uh, and one that also at Pretendus we're confident that they're they're going to be able to to tackle successfully, especially with new technologies coming onto the front from a, a variety of different areas. That's Robert Lord from Protenus. You can sign up to receive copies of their breach barometer reports on their website. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.